I mean, I didn't think I had depression. I thought I was depression. This time, when I woke up in the hospital, no, I was, I was pissed that I was alive. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, the host. I'm excited today on the line we have Andy Grant. Andy is a transformational energy coach, founder of Real Men Feel, a best-selling author, and a suicide attempt survivor. Andy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Al. It's great to be here. So I know... uh, you are doing a ton of work around men, around depression. It's it's really cool to have a guest on the show who is, uh, I think you're really closely aligned to the work I've been doing. How long have you been doing your advocacy work? Boy, that's, I think 2008 was the first time I did kind of a public video talking about my suicide attempts. Okay. So, and that was how you began engaging in work around advocacy and supporting others was actually by sharing your own story. Correct. Yeah. And you did that, did you say, on a video? Yes. Holy had, smokes. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was. it's what scared me the most. I was terrified of the feedback, what people would say. I was actually in a Hay House contest. I had gone to a, an event they called Movers and Shakers. I met Louise Hay and Cheryl Richardson, and I, I had this yearning to serve in some way, to share something, but I didn't know what it was going to be. And Pete, there was a contest, and you had to make a five-minute video and pitch yourself, pitch your book, pitch your show. I didn't have any of those. I didn't have any idea, but people on the final day, enough other people that went to it kept pushing me to, you got to make a video. you got to tell your story. So I told a story about feeling suicidal and... Um, Louise Hay saw it, said I was amazing, said, no matter what about this contest, you've got to keep making videos. You've got to keep telling your story. And they made a special, you know, nice, nice try (laughs) award just for me. Yeah, I wasn't, I had no pitch. I, you know, I knew I didn't have anything yet that, that could be a book or could be anything, but they just said I could connect through the lens like, like nobody they saw. So that's what gave me the confidence to keep going. And and I kind of never stopped. That's really cool. Your work currently, though, and we'll talk a, much more about it later. But but your work currently does not involve a lot of video, or does it? No, it actually does. So I this this month, February, is the fourth anniversary of my podcast, Real Men Feel, and it began on this social media platform that didn't last long called Blab, which was video based. So my podcast has always been video first, and then I was like, oh, I can make this an audio and release this as a podcast. Cool. And, uh, and I've done it both ways. So you, wow. you can watch my podcast or listen. Oh, I, ni- I did not realize that. So oh, I'm, I'm glad I asked. Yeah, I just thought the podcast was audio. So you actually, you record it. It is video, and you have guests on your show, right? Correct. 
Okay, so like I said, I'm going to hold back and resist from asking more questions because really we will definitely talk about that and I'd love to hear more about it. But I want to start with your own story of depression. Uh, and I know you had several suicide attempts. How young were you looking back? How long do you think you were struggling with depression? <laughs> In utero? <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, I, so I can. That's pretty I can... damn early, Andy. Yeah. And I really, you know, when I do work and try to go back, like it does feel like as, as long as I can remember, I felt lied to like this place was supposed to be fun and cool and it, it wasn't. But I can remember being as young as eight years old and, and having suicidal thoughts. And wow. so I'm sure they were before that. Um, but I, you know, my, my parents can remember like at me around like age five changing from being this outgoing kid to just really getting silent and being withdrawn. And that was around the time they were getting divorced. So they kind of thought that was the reason. But what, what was also happening was I began getting molested by a neighbor. Oh and I, you know, I thought if I spoke up that I'd be in trouble somehow and that I'd be the next man kicked out of my home. Wow. So I thought the world was not safe. I didn't feel I could speak up. I was an only child. So it was just me and my mom. Um, I was overweight. I was naturally good in school. Both those things were not always greeted well by my peers. <laughs> right. So, right. yeah. So, you know, there, there's bullying. There was sexual molestation. There was a child of divorce. My dad was an alcoholic. There'd be visits with the house with police and lawyers and violence. And, yeah, I, I did not think life was a good thing. Holy shit, like you just threw a lot at us. And I got to say, usually I feel fairly well prepared for the guests because I try to research guests as best I can. And, and you just threw me for a huge loop. Holy <laughs> shit, I did not realize all that. So did you say age five or was it age eight where you started getting molested? Age five was the molestation. Age oh eight is when I can remember okay. wanting to die. Right. And age five, was it ongoing molestation from a neighbor? Yeah, it it was I don't remember a lot of it. And in in fact, when I was 30, I got myself hypnotized to to prove was was I making this up or not? All these all these things were in the news about false childhood memories and things, and that made me like question my own recollections. So I got hypnotized, which felt horrible. So I knew it had happened, and it was also clear that it wasn't just once, but we also moved from that area. When did we move? Probably when I was like seven. So it was more than once. I, I don't think it went on for years. Right. And, and it was, did you ever inquire with your folks about it after, uh, when you realized it? Yeah. Um, by the time I was consciously aware of it and shared it with them, I was 20. And my dad, they, they knew who it was. They knew who I was talking about. My dad thought he had passed away already. And that was, it, it was weird. Like, that's how he consoled me. Well, he's like, well, like, well, he's dead. I'm like, and that, you know, that didn't matter. That, right. <laughs> just, that had no bearing on the pain I was in. I wasn't, yeah, I, I was never like vengeful about it. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I, I had blacked this out. I, I, I was not, I had no memories of my parents together and I thought it was due to the divorce. Right. right? So, so even at age seven, I could remember going back to, to ages, to anything happening to me as, as kids I hung around with would talk, would have recollections of being two and three. Right. And I, you know, I don't remember anything before I started going to school. Wow. 
So I thought, anyway, I thought it was the divorce. So there was all these reasons to explain things, but I was in a mental hospital at age 20 and they were talking about molestation and it just came flooding back to me. And I had these just, ugh, it is good. Um, the, wow. These images that would just, yeah, conveyed, I was in sexual positions with an adult and that, that would, they just were haunting me. And I, uh, I was just freaking out. It, was, it all just came flooding back. Yeah. Of course you were freaking out. And I do want to acknowledge, too, like your dad's response, while it sounds fairly insensitive the way you, you mention it, and it I'm sure it felt that way to you possibly, but, man, he probably didn't know what the hell to say either, just finding yeah. that out. And, yeah. you know, how who knows what kind of feelings were flooding through him of maybe of guilt, of... Yeah, because they were they were friends. It was a friend of my dad. He wasn't he wasn't just a neighbor. I knew the whole family. I I played with there were there were two young girls that lived in that house, and and, and in fact, part of the abuse was um, making me do things with them. Right. So wow. that really just whacked out my whole like. <laughs> I was I was more sexually active at like age six <laughs> than at than at sixteen. Like right. it was it just yeah it it messed me up. Well, and I can't imagine how much that messes you up. Like first of all, it's an adult. You're doing things you don't you don't even know if it's right, if it's wrong, um, or, or so many so many issues. You know, as a person who's not a survivor, I haven't dealt with any kind of sexual abuse. I can't. I can't come close to even relating and understanding how traumatic that must have been. Um, so w were you fairly isolated in like middle school, high school when you had gone through all of these pieces? Did you did you have friends? Were you able to get through school and do all right? You know, I, I certainly had friends. I had a few close friends, but, you know, I felt like the outcast. I would drift I, because because I was smart, you know, I was you know, top of the class. So I could make friends with the jocks and the cool kids if I let them cheat. And when no one needed to cheat, I could hang out with, with the heads and the dropouts and the druggies. You know, I, I was a real chameleon, but yeah, I might've had like just, you know, a couple people in my neighborhood that I actually felt like I was honest friends with. Right. And you mentioned a first uh, feeling of suicide around age eight yeah. and was that like a one-time deal or were these ongoing thoughts from that no. point on? Yeah, they were ongoing thoughts. I remember, I still to this day remember like recurring nightmares of that time and different monsters forcing me along a cliff that kept getting narrower and narrower until there was nowhere for me to step and I fall to my death. Being ripped apart by killer robots and over and over every night was just these tormenting uh, dreams and one thing my father often said to me was that high school is it's the best years of your life. Just wait to get to high school. You're going to have a blast. And I took it that, well, if high school is the best, why does anyone go beyond that? Right. So, you know, I'll try to stick around. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll live till I'm 18. I'll live the best part, according to my dad, and then I'll die. Right. But, but the attempt started long before that. And, and again, it wasn't until I was an adult that I realized, you know, my dad is saying high school is the best part of your life. He was 20, maybe 22, telling me this. So wow. he didn't he didn't have much <laughs> beyond. So, yeah, high school probably was the peak because then, you know, it was in college. He gets my mom pregnant. They get married. He's he's he did. He worked two full time jobs and was a full time student trying to make this all work. So, yeah, it was it, looking back. I'm sure he thought high school was just awesome. <laughs> so what are the, Were you going through other different symptoms throughout middle school, high school? Other, 
I would imagine, in addition to the suicidal thoughts? Yeah, uh, my 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 parents they took me to see a child psychologist when I was eleven or twelve. I think it was after my first attempt, but I'm honestly not even sure. But yeah, um, I was moody, I was gloomy, I was quiet. I mean, yeah, I mean, I was depressed, but right. you know, I didn't know what to call it that. I thought, and I I, I felt I was different. I uh, I thought normal people were were always happy, and happiness was this kind of flat high, like everybody was in the mood of like Ned Flanders, just hey, okie dokie, everything's great, and they're just that's that's where people lived, and I was in this emotional basement, and yeah, I, I knew I was different. I would even look at some my by this time my dad was in AA, and everywhere we we would go, he seemed to know everybody because they were all in AA. And he would tell me about the evils of drink and that it was really bad and horrible, but it also, it, you know, it's, it's passed on in your genes. So you're more susceptible to this. And again, this is at like age 10. Wow. So I was thinking, wow, being an adult, that, that really sucks. And I see all these miserable adults that don't like their jobs, seem to just work for the weekend and then they, they party on the weekend or they realize that didn't work and they all go to AA meetings. It just right. seemed like being an adult was no much more oh fun my than goodness. anything. Right. And so were you getting any kind of help uh, for the depression prior to your first suicide attempt? No. no. And then how old were you at your first attempt? Uh, I was 12 or 13. I think 12. Okay. Yeah. And you remember that whole scene? Yeah, and I'm. It's bizarre the details. I remember it was a Sunday night. I remember watching The Deep on TV, and during every commercial break, I would go to the bathroom and take some pills. Wow. Another break, another set of pills. Yeah. Okay. And then, how did that culminate? Did you end up uh, in the hospital? Did somebody find you? I ended up getting sick in the middle of the night. My mom heard me throwing up, and by then I was bawling, and I confessed what I had been doing. Um, and neither of us wanted to believe it. Like, she went to work that day, and I stayed from, home from school um, just because nobody knew what to do. So in hindsight, though, it seemed really bizarrely extra dangerous to, to leave the uh, suicidal 12-year-old uh, alone for that. But... You know, I was telling, no, I'm fine. This this is a mistake. I would, you know, I was upset. I got, but now I'm scared. I don't, I don't want to do that. But I'm, you know, it might have just gotten me maybe three months of relief, and then I was, you know, just doing other. I I was a cutter for a little bit. I would make uh, just homemade poisons out of chemicals and stuff, and I was kind of always daring myself to to do self harm. So when when your mom realized that you had tried to kill yourself. And then she left to work. Did she, is that when you first started to see a therapist? Yeah, probably a little while after that because we, we realized I, like, I wasn't, I wasn't getting better. Right. But, but I also, I, I didn't want help. Mm -hmm. I would tell therapists stories. Um, I'd tell them what I thought they wanted to hear and leave with a smile. I go, yeah, this is great. Thanks. This is great. I feel wonderful. You're the best. And nothing would really change. Can you say more about that? Like, was it difficult to tell them the truth or mm -hmm. did you want to hide it from them? Like, why? And I'm sure you're not the only, you know, you were so young at that time. Yeah. Even adults aren't always honest with their therapists. But right. what was it holding you back from the truth? You know, it, it wasn't it wasn't my choice. Like, I didn't want help. 
I, right. it, so I, I was around the time I was, I'm, I'm seeing this child psychiatrist and I, I remember liking him. I thought he was cool enough, but so I might've only seen him three or four times, right? Cause I, I did, I, I seemed fine. You know, I wasn't, and, and I had blacked out a lot of stuff. So there was, I, there was no trauma for me to share. Right. I just, I don't like life. I don't feel like other people, you know, the end, but at, Age 15, uh, I would got my first diagnosis and my dad's psychiatrist met with me and decided that I was bipolar because he was. And that was a five minute meeting and it made me feel more hopeless and helpless because it just said, it's your brain chemistry. Yep. It's messed up. These pills might help. So age it, it 15, was, you go, you see a psychiatrist. He says it's bipolar disorder and at that time, did you even know what bipolar disorder was? Did he engage in a conversation? And I know you just said you were feeling more hopeless. Tell us more about that as well. So, and I, I know I, some people get a label or diagnosis and it makes them feel better. Like it's not them. There's a reason. And the way it was presented to me was, you know, there's, there's no cure. You have this for the rest of your life. Those are the breaks, kid. That's a nice way to, to address a 15-year-old. Holy shit. Yeah. So I went on lithium. Um, I had every possible side effect that I've ever heard of. Um, I had f not just like handshakes. I had full body tremors. Um, I thought if this is what normal people are, I, I really want to die now. Um, so, yeah, meds really had an opposite effect on me. Um, did, did you have any kind of symptoms that uh, were similar to going through a mania that that made this uh, psychiatrist come up with the diagnosis? No, it was just because of of the genes and calling it, you know, hereditary. Wow. Um, my my dad did have manic episodes. He would be up all night and you know try to launch five businesses a day. Um, I would see that, and you know, one thing I my my dad would tell me this story of me being like two or three years old and in the waiting room while he's getting electric shock, and wow. I hear him screaming. Um, so, yeah, I was introduced to mental illness <laughs> in utero. Right, know? right. Man, that just seems mind-boggling to me that they would come up with a bipolar disorder diagnosis. So you start taking the meds, you you have all these side effects, and, and are you feeling any better? No. I'm, I, again, know. I'm feeling more hopeless, more helpless. And I have good taste. Like, I, you know, I there it wasn't 100% gloom, but the gloom always came back, and I thought, my happy times were the lie. Right. And I thought, I mean, I didn't think I had depression. I thought I was depression. Right. I thought I was suicidal thoughts. These were the real me. And sometimes I could pull the wool over the world's eyes and enjoy myself. But the truth always came back. Wow. How long were you staying on? How long did you stay on lithium? And were you also getting some talk therapy at the time? Or was it just, here's some pills. We hope they help. Yeah, it was only pills. Um, I, yeah, yeah, it was the child psychologist that talked. And again, it seemed nice and pleasant, but it was short run. And because I, I would hide, I, I'd get good enough to be able to hide my symptoms. I remember guidance counselors and teachers seeing slashes on my wrists and me making up stories. Of, oh, yeah, I was cutting baloney and uh, just, it slipped. And everyone, because I was, you know, I was good in school. Like, he, you know, he's a good kid. Why would he lie? Okay, I guess that's it. Right. It, was, it was easy to, to bluff people. And people want people want to believe my bluffs and lies. Right. right? It's probably but, easier for them to deal with. 
right? Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I wasn't a troublemaker. You know, yeah. I, I just wanted out, right? Wow. <laughs> and, and even I, you know, at this time, I didn't know the reasons. I didn't know that I had all this trauma that was still really affecting me right. because it had never been dealt with. So, you know, through high school, I'm, I'm on different antidepressants. You know, they changed the lithium or I think they gave me more. I was I think I was on two and three pills at a time through junior and senior year. Um, but the senior year, senior year of high school, I uh, I took everything. I, all, all the prescription meds I had, I took them all. And I uh, I, I I'm honestly not sure if I. Put, my, put myself into a coma or just blacked out, but I, I have no recollection of, of being found, of being brought to the hospital. My dad told me that I fought the cops and there was a big ruckus in the ER. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do anything. I wouldn't cooperate with anything. But I remember coming to in a hospital bed and it's just a bright light on me and I'm like, I, I thought I was dead. And wow. I felt that peace. And then a nurse came in and I'm like, fuck, I'm alive? And I see the nurse is actually the mom of two friends from high school. I'm like, oh fuck! Everybody at school's gonna know. Uh-huh. Ah, so now I've, you know, I've I've talked to people and met people that made an attempt and it didn't work, and they just, you know, it was that they had that moment of like, oh thank God, I'm still, I made it. I will never do this again. And except for the first time when um when I was just taking pills every every commercial break that I talked about. That time I really did scared, and I was like, "Oh yeah, I don't want to die." But this this time, when I woke up in the hospital, no, I was I was pissed that I was alive. Wow! And um, I would not cooperate with anybody. They wanted me to go to uh, McLean's Hospital outside of Boston, which is world renowned. I had not heard of it. It was world renowned, best place in the world for depression treatment. I didn't care. I made them tie me up. I made EMTs carry me and put me in an ambulance. I made them carry me up three flights of uh, stairs at McLean's to the admissions place. I was still in a, uh, a Johnny. I was just like, I'm not helping anybody try to help me. Wow. And yeah. This was I, senior year of high school, did you say? Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, so they get you to a hospital and you spend some time inpatient? Yep. I was, uh, I was there for just under a month. They wanted me to stay a lot longer. Um, but again, I had such toxic effects to the medication I had full body tremors to the point that I could not walk. I would be walking down hallways and collapse. I had tactile hallucinations. I saw rats and spiders on people crawling on me. I felt them. I knew the things were fake, but I'm seeing them. Um, it was like just stereotypical acid trip sort of things. The, uh, the doctors told my parents some of my friends must have brought me street drugs. That was their explanation. Uh, the only friends that visited me were like, the you know the the top cleanest athlete friends of mine who never would you know they would never do that with me anywhere let alone do something like that and in a hospital they wanted me to be alive you know right um as an adult i requested my records from the hospital and there it says toxic reaction there was also neurological tests but yeah so they they did not tell us the truth they in their own paperwork they didn't say you know anybody slipped me anything they just said you know they i was over medicated and had a toxic reaction and they didn't share that with you or your family, as far as you know. No, and my, yeah, my my mom did not. She I showed the records when I got them, and she was like, "Oh my god, we had no idea. We, you know, you know, they just uh, they just wanted they just wanted their son to be better." Wow, you, know? you have dealt with some awful doctors. It sounds like, <laughs> yeah. like yeah. really some bad bad situations and doctors. 
so you were inpatient for almost a month. Yeah, then you I, come out and it's still your senior year. Yeah, I left against medical advice, but this the medication gone so badly. My parents just couldn't say stay there. Right. And and it was crazy. We I get out of the hospital, and the next week is my senior class trip to Bermuda. Wow. And I'm like, well, if I'm alive, I'm going to Bermuda. And I go to Bermuda. I'm I'm depressed as all get up. I spend most of the time alone, most of the time drinking, which I know is making it worse. But it was just, uh, yeah, it was the worst vacation I've ever had in my life. Your parents uh, must have been a little nervous having you leave. I'm sure. You know, I don't recall after uh, getting out of the hospital. Yeah, they didn't talk about it to me. I don't recall it. But but again, I I wasn't a talker then. You weren't. People, it's amazing that I that I tell as much as I do these days. Because yeah, no, you if, if you know, yep. You've okay, been holding fine. it in for like thirty five years or something. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> so, um, wow. And up until this point, no other work towards recovery. It was just the medications, or was there talk therapy, or other long term programming, or anything else to support you in recovery? No. And again, I didn't want support. Yeah. So the right. the only, you know, there was group therapy, there was therapy, there was talk in the hospital. Yeah. Out, outside of hospitals. No, I did right. not. I would not follow up with anybody. Um, and I'm sure I must have left. Yeah. And I did leave. I, you know, I had, they had, I had, but again, it was always psychiatrists. It was guys that would see you for 10 minutes asking how the meds were. There was right. no talk therapy. There was no support. There was no, why is this happening? Right. What happens after college? I'm sorry, uh-huh. after after high school. Did you go to college or what were your next steps? Yeah, I did eventually. So before my senior year suicide attempt, uh, the class rankings come out and I'm third in my class of like 360 people. Wow. And I was terrified. I uh, I thought I'm just, you know, king of the idiots. The, the, I'm, an, I'm the top of the mountain of morons. I, I'm going to go to college and be founded as a fraud. Like I, so I was panicked. So I, even, even after I came back, after being hospitalized, I tried to flunk. I tried to stay behind. I, I, was, I was afraid to grow up. I was afraid to graduate. All the teachers kept giving me A's because they said, if you were here, you get an A. I'm like, don't you understand? I'm not, I'm not there. I, wow. You know, um, I remember the, the school secretary calling me like, why aren't you in school, Andrew? And I'm like, I haven't been in school in like two weeks. Like, you can't just do that. And I'm like, well, I have been, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, don't tell me I can't. It's sour. It's been happening. You know, you know the, uh, the thought you describe of being third in your class and yet feeling like, oh crap, people are going to figure this out. And, and everybody is just ridiculously stupid in this place <laughs> is very much those depressive thoughts and the, the lies depression tell us, right? Like, had you been healthy, maybe you could acknowledge and be proud of being third in the class, but not when you're depressed. Yeah. No, it was like um, I applied for colleges only when forced to. My parent, my mom especially, just really held out hope that this was I was just going to snap to. Um, she paid a deposit. She, you know, I was accepted at every college that I applied to, and you know, on the the first day of college, my my alleged freshman year. Um, you know, she thought I was going to get up and go and I, no one believed me. Like, no, I'm not going. Like, I didn't say yes. Like, you, you know, if you sent a payment, you're, you're foolish. Like I told you I'm not going and I didn't, wow. um, you know, for two years I, I, I did temp jobs. I actually, uh, 
when I was 20, I finally, I, I went to a local community college. I was like, all right, I've, I've, I'm sick of this. Let me, I, I'll go to school. I'm ready for this. Let me go to the community college. And it was just so ridiculously easy. I, I, you know, first semester I was straight A's. I was helping the teacher teach English class. Like there were people, <laughs> it was like circle the noun, like was English class. I was like, come on. So I just stopped going because it was so ridiculous. And I, I saved a report card. I went from straight A's to straight F's just because I stopped going. But. <laughs> But actually, there was oh, the, I was there for communications, and there was a mandatory public speaking class the next semester, and I was so terrified of that. That's why I stopped going. Really? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I could. I was. I used to be so nervous and scared that if it was go around the room and say your name when where you're from, I had to practice, and I was terrified. And I, I could tell it was beat red. You know, my my fingers would be, my fingers would be shaking. My my toe, my whole my whole legs would be shaking in my seat. It, it was terror of, of, yeah, I, I guess I was, maybe I was lying so much to myself. I was afraid of anyone seeing through it, seeing how much pain I was really in. But yeah, that, I, it's funny. It just hit me now. I hadn't thought of that in, you know, decades, but that's why I stopped going to that school. I found out there was this mandatory public speaking class coming up my way. I was like, oh, that, that ends this. <laughs> Which is really funny because now you're in front of the camera. You're, you're out there speaking to many, many, many people. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, that is how amazingly magnificent life is. Everything I used to think was wrong with me, I finally see as a strength. Right. And everything I was terrified of doing are the things I do daily now. Right, right. So it's just, just, yeah, it just shows how much we can lie to ourselves. So, So you end up not going to college, you end up doing odd jobs. And is your your depression, obviously, it sounds like it's still there and you're not really doing anything at this point. Are you still working under the premise of, of bipolar disorder? And is that still your diagnosis? Um, no, nope, there, there's another hospitalization the year after high school. Because um, of another attempt? Yes, yeah, there were more attempts. Um, uh, How many attempts would you say you've had? So I only count the ones that landed me in a hospital, and that's five. Okay. Wow. The last, the last hospital I was in, no, I couldn't. The hospital I was in at age twenty, I met a psychologist who said, any time I had the intention of harming myself or dying, that was a suicide attempt. So I had never counted intentionally drinking and driving. I had never counted all the times I had my car revved up and facing a brick wall, trying to force myself to just floor it. I never counted those. Right. If, if those, you know, to use his standard, it's certainly dozens, many dozens, and possibly hundreds of attempts. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was, it was, it was not good. But, but that's, that's how I got relief. I came to realize, like, oh, the pressure would build. I made an attempt, and that relieved some of my pressure. But still, at no point are you getting therapy or anything, and you're going through these thoughts and attempts it seems almost on the regular basis and you're not deciding, holy shit, it's time to reach out for help and do something more. Yeah. Finally I did. Uh, again, I think it was all when I was 20, I had made another attempt on my life repeating a means that had already failed me. Right. And I was just like, all right, this, this, this obviously isn't working. Like I was just, I felt like this, the world's worst joke. Like, I can't even die, right? I can't live. I can't die. There's, there's got to be some better way. I've, 
and I, I was not raised with any sort of religion. I really wanted to just die, and that's the end. You know, black, the end. I don't want anything else. But I, it was the first time I began to think that possibly I'm supposed to be here. Something is keeping me alive. Right. So maybe I should, like, search for that. Um, so huh, I had one school that accepted me that I could, I could just keep signing a letter saying, next, se- next semester, next semester, next semester. So that was still there. I had a full scholarship. Um, and so I did go to school. So two years later than, than my peers, I did go to college and I partied a lot. I used a lot of alcohol to hide my pain back then to, to feel, to cry. I would drink, go out to parties, come home alone. I I had, I had a single in the dorms and I had a single when I lived off campus with friends and I would just cry. I would just drunkenly sob. And that's how I got through uh, the days, weeks, and months, and years. And, you know, I, I didn't die in high school. My four years of college, I was I was pretty sure I would just die before I graduated. You know, I was like, well, these these are fun years. I'll, I'll do this, and then I'll off myself. So you were self-medicating with booze, and you knew that there was alcoholism in the family, and it sounds like your dad told you at a young age. Yeah, and I had been to alcohol rehab. Uh, it was... Huh. It was the last, yeah, the last mental hospital I'd been sent to. No, so so many mental hospitals, it it didn't work. So my my dad decided he needs an alcohol rehab. Even at this time, like, you know, I wasn't, like, I was drinking intentionally. I was, I would like, I'm going to get drunk so I can feel. And that's, you know, I'm like, people drink socially? That's a thing? Like, no, I use this as for its tool. It's a tool. What are you talking about? You know? But anyway, so I, I go, I go to this, uh. Alcohol rehab. But I remember they uh, they reminding me that Steven Tyler and Joe Perry of Aerosmith went there once, and that was supposed to make me stay. <laughs> you know? but, right. uh, but after a while, they like, you know, you're an addict, but you're, you're without a substance. You've got every sign. You have every symptom. You just didn't bother using something. And that was like the first thing that made sense to me. I'm like, I can buy that. When I read, you know, the list of uh, – of alcoholics or adult children of alcohol, every every list of all these different groups and self help things. I saw. I have all of these things. I have all these signs for all this stuff around alcoholism. But so they transferred me to a mental hospital, and that's when I, you know, I was I I finally embraced it there. That's where I had the flashback of the molestation, and and I really thought, well, now I know what happened. Now everything's going to be great. Um. So yeah, I'll go to school. You know, this is my turnaround. Everyone really wanted to believe that and accept that. Um, but again, it wasn't because I just knowing the facts of what happened to me didn't do anything around the wound and the trauma of it. So, you know, I, I get through college drinking a lot, you know, no suicide attempts by my definition, but plenty right. of them by planning, uh, setting dates, finding means and ways I was always very aware of which of my friends had guns in their homes. Right. Um, but but so I, li- I live in Massachusetts. It's it's tough to get a gun, and all these homes they locked. They had good gun care. There were many times I thought, well, I'll sleep over at my buddy's house, and I'll get up in the middle of the night and I'll get that rifle. But all these homes they they locked up their guns, so I I couldn't do it. So. And at this point, are you completely off of meds because of the side effects, or are you still Correct. taking meds? No, no, so no, no meds. meds and no help no. Of, of any kind at this point. Mm, and, yeah, and living with what you believe is bipolar disorder. 
I didn't believe that. Okay. Yeah, okay. I know. I never. And so the second hospital, they, I became borderline disorder. Then it was just, now it's just, it's just major depressive episodes. But even that, I, I remember, I remember like my day one on like my fifth hospitalization and they decided, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's just depression. You have major depressive episode. You, you can't feel good. And I remember watching the Simpsons and Seinfeld and laughing hysterically. And I was like, their explanation just doesn't work. Right. If, if my, if it's all chemical, how am I finding this funny? Like right. here, I'm locked up in a hospital yet again. I'm like my life is shit and I can laugh at this stuff. Like it just, it never added up to me. Right. Right. So, you know, I, I do believe like there's a chemical component, but now I, I, my belief is that no, it's my thoughts and my beliefs that create that chemical stew. Right. And that over time, I like my brain becomes so addicted. I was so used to that stew of misery that it somehow felt better because I was used to it. Right. So, but yeah, I, I graduate college and I'm, I'm one of the only people in college that gets a job before I even graduate. So now I'm like, well, I, I guess I won't kill myself. I've got a job already. Nice. Um, <laughs> like an actual so, professional job before graduating. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah, I, I I had an internship and it turned into a, a paying job and to a full time job offer as college as graduation approached. So that's why I stayed alive. And then that became my next trauma. I, uh, so at at this place I'm working, uh, a married woman, fifteen or twenty years my senior, um, just keeps coming on to me, and. She she convinced me that all women cheat and that that's the way it is. Marriage is a scam. And, you know, she just wanted a drinking buddy and we started hanging out. But then it had to be a secret at work. So I'm back to like living lies and keeping secrets and it's feeling horrible. But I'm like, well, this is better than being alone. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, so that resulted in my final hospitalization and now I'm, I'm 23 24 years old because of another attempt no oh. i was finally an adult i sought help <laughs> without making an attempt okay. and i was so proud of it this was a huge deal to me right. and it's just because i'm going to i feel like dying but i'm not gonna and yeah i uh it was really the first time i felt grown up <laughs> and and you connected to uh being with this married woman mostly because that was what was creating this deep sadness for you that made you decide, whoa, uh, I'm feeling this sadness. I may think about an attempt again, and instead I'm going to reach out for help. Yeah, um, right. and it, it gets even goofier. So we wow. were living together. We were living together. I could not answer the phone. We had to drive to work separately. It was like everything was a secret. Wow. And yeah, and again, just because I felt, you know, it, it was... Mm. And she was married and living separately, just separated. Yes, yeah. Right. I think like I never. Her husband it's all from wasn't her upstairs. And right. the, uh... I never saw people. I you know it's all. <laughs> and she would play games like tell me that. Uh, she would she would come home and say that oh she met someone last night and slept with this other guy, and I'd be like, wow. Oh, but but because I didn't like hit her or I didn't just storm out, she's like, wow, you really care about me. No, that didn't happen. I was just testing you. Holy crap. That yeah. does not like, sound what? like a very healthy relationship. No, and it wasn't. But this is, you know, I coming out of all the mental hospitals. Right. I before college, I decided, hmm, 
when I fall in love, I end up really getting hurt and and ending up being suicidal. I don't know the difference between sex and love. I'm not going to have sex with anybody. I'm just going to shut down. And then I'll be able to live a, a normal, healthy life. So I was abstinent all through college. And finally, this, you know, drunken older woman <laughs> wears me down enough. And <laughs> I thought, well, this isn't that bad, is it? You know, and but yeah, it was it was horrible. Um, it was I was really, you know, I found myself like in this really narcissistic, abusive relationship. I gave all my power away uh, because it was easier than dealing with my my own issues. Right. Like, oh, let's let's deal with your issues. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, right. But so you decide to reach out for help and yeah. actually enter the hospital again. Yes. And this is bizarre. I I go to the local hospital and it's the hospital that I was born at. Wow. Yeah, we're across the state, and we're in Massachusetts, so we're back near where my parents went to school, and I discover I'm, I'm in the hospital where I was born. And it's like, oh, I'm like a salmon coming upstream to finish my life or, or regenerate it or whatever. But And at this point, uh, insurance is very different than it was when I was in high school. So uh, even though I'm suicidal, I have a long history of attempts, I'm only there for the weekend. And then they release me. Oh my and, God! You finally decide to make the right decision, and and yeah. that's what you get. Yep. Ugh. Um, but um, I did leave with a, a recommendation to a therapist. I saw him. He was someone I liked. I see him t- two times two times a week. Um, he helped me realize what a mess of a situation I was in because I, you know, I'm in this bizarre living situation. So I go to the hospital. I'm in the hospital so short that I get released back to that bizarre living situation. So I really needed time to like some some help to to like leave that, get my own place and and rebuild and what the distorted weird thing that often happens to me, I come out of a hospital, I come out of a suicide attempt and I'm in a better place. Not just emotionally but circumstantially. So while I'm in this hospital over just this weekend, a job I had applied for wants to hire me. And in it's a different a, city. Yeah. Right. Bigger pay. So I finally, I don't have to, I don't have to lie. Hi. So, wow. I'm like, I'm like, all right, uh, I've got a raise. I've got this different place to go. I can move, I can live alone. I can get out of this relationship. Like, wow. You know, mental hospitals are great. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but that, that was this weird pattern that I had built that that was my treatment. Like it had to, I had to hit so bad that I want out. And then somehow, you know, life, Shows me other ways. Right. And, you know, I, I land on a stronger set of feet than I had, you know, just days before. And you had made it sound like you really connected with a therapist. Was that somebody yep. that you were able to still see? Yep. Yep. Uh, kept seeing him. Ah. <sighs> And by this point, I'm just like, I, I, I give up on relationships. I'm just going to work and I'll work on myself and I'm getting more into just personal growth and, and self-help and feeling relief. And I'm kind of just like, oh, I, I just my, I just want to meet someone normal. Can I just is there a normal human being out there? And uh, and someone, you know, I was kind of fixed up on a blind date, but I didn't even know it. So uh, mutual friends have me meet someone and I'm just. You know, I'm she just someone and I'm like, hello, and I'm doing whatever I'm doing. And then we meet again at a party. And um, and anyway, quickly, um, we really hit it off. And like our, our second date, I really remember thinking like, oh, my God, I'm going to marry this one. Like this is that feeling that 
people have talked about all my life and here it is. And, and we did get married. And so I had to leave, uh, move and leave that therapist. I had the good relationship with, I, uh, I had to tell my fiance and give her the horror story and say, before you really say yes, and we move in together, you know, I am a suicidal psychopath. I might try to die often. I'm like, I'm just blah, all over. And she had already been told her friend warned, you know, Andy's really sweet. You know, he's sensitive. And, and I hate that term. I hate being called a nice guy. I hate being called sensitive. It all just, you know, feels like a horrible code word for, you know, the, well, the truth. I mean, I am, <laughs> so, but, but I don't like it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I've got the coolest wife possible. There have not been more hospitalizations. There had when I when I how moved. long ago was this that you got married? Uh been married twenty two years. Wow. Yeah. Congratulations. That's awesome. And you're saying since you got married, there there were no more suicidal attempts. Right. No more attempts. Yeah. And certainly periods of thought. There have been scary times. Um lesser and like a greater period between them. Um, my wife can usually tell when they're coming. And again, it's really, it's usually circumstantial trigger me. It's like my default recourse. My default reaction is screw this. I'm out of here. I'm going to kill myself. And sometimes it kicks me away. And sometimes I can just laugh at how silly it is. Right. Right. But it's just my, it's just been my default. Um, and, and are you, since you got married, were you still getting therapy or? Yeah. So off and on, it, I, when it got really bad, I've even, I went back, I tried antidepressants probably three times in the last, you know, 20 years. Just like, well, I've, I've, even if I don't think these work, I got to, I'm willing to do anything. Right. And, uh, and these days they like, they would test them. Like, do you notice anything? I'm like, no. Oh, good. I'm like, oh, so now it's like, now it's like the pill that I don't notice. That's the one that works for me, you know. So, so I don't put much stock into them. But uh, so, are I, you still taking meds? No, no, I'm okay. not on anything currently. Um, I don't think I ever will be again. I've, I've really have done so much work, and I've become such a spiritual person. And I know that it's hard. I don't, it's hard to even put into words. I, I've been through enough weird things and wanting to die and something keeps me going. I know I can't end that way. And and once I started sharing my story, once getting the feedback from people, the, the, I'm just discovering that the more authentic and vulnerable I've been in life, the more life embraces me. Yeah. The more right. connection I have with people, like like when I made that video back in two thousand eight, you know, I'd say things like, you know, if 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 what I do can save one life, it means it's all been worth it. And I've had the honor and pleasure of, I've lost count of how many people have told me that whatever I did, shared, told them, um, saved their life. It's a pretty and, incredible feeling, isn't it? I mean, yeah. Like, how rewarding is that? Knowing that you've saved lives, right? I mean, that's <laughs> that's incredible. I mean, yeah. w what more work can you be doing that is so rewarding that you know you literally have saved lives? Yeah, it, there isn't. There's not a better feeling. And that's why, uh, you know, I, I really used to think that I was here to die. And now I'm like, no, I'm, I'm here to have gone through that so that I can know that nobody is here to die. Right. It's, you know, really, like, you know, I went from believing life sucks, then you die to knowing that no life is a gift it's magnificent and really the only person that was ever in my way from seeing that was me 
Right, right. And I want to, just because your words are still sticking with me and I just wanted to comment on it, when you said, no, you're not getting any therapy, but you're you're working, I forgot the exact words, you're, you're working on, on yourself, right? Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. the piece that you didn't really explicitly say, but you've done so much work, that's what you said. Yeah. And, and really, it's work on yourself, right? Yeah. All yeah, of the spiritual pieces, all of, and, and, you know, I would imagine the sharing your story, the podcast, all this stuff, I'm guessing is therapeutic for you. Yeah, um, there's, mm, yeah, every, like I've, I've done some videos and podcasts and I've done them from the depths of depression and despair. That's got to be tough. Yeah, those are the shows I never listen to. I just trust that they serve someone and I publish them. Okay, awesome. Yeah, and they're the things that come back. People are like, wow, like you are almost insanely brave to have done that. And I just, you know, I there is always a reward for for laying myself out there because yeah. I know, however freaking horrible I'm feeling, I know there are other people that feel that way right then and now, and I know there are other people that felt that way and worse and made it through. Right, and and. You know, for for years and years and years, I would just kind of touch the darkness and retreat. Once I was willing to really feel, that's why my podcast is called Real Men Feel. Once I was willing to feel it, it passed yeah. much easier and quicker than I ever dared imagine. Right. You, you, I hear that often, right? Like, acknowledge it, feel it, be with it, essentially, yeah. and, and let it pass. Rather yeah. than trying to push against it and get angry about it and try to, like... Right, put up this wall. Uh, yeah, yeah. E- every emotion serves us. Right, and and I have found that when I am willing to feel whatever emotion shows up, the moment it's showing up, that's the healthiest way to live. That that lets it pass the quickest. But of course, to be able to react to every emotion that's really happening to the circumstances of now, I had to release and heal the storage <laughs> of years of not feeling what I had, and right. you know, because because. Especially for men, like you, you think you're not emotional. No, we all have emotions, and you either repress them, deny them, stuff them, but they are there, yeah. and they will they will be felt. And they usually come out sideways, right? And, and get us in trouble. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, since you got married and you've been working on yourself through your work, spirituality, and so forth, your your mental state of mind it sounds like sometimes you have rough days and rough periods but you've never been suicidal again i can't say that okay um for for me it, so it's weird like so i can i can be suicidal but be confident i'm not going to act on it right that's okay. so that that's the difference i just i want to say oh no I've, I've you never had a suicidal thought again i'm like no that's not the case <laughs> you know um cuz again it's this such this bizarre default thought yeah, that it's it's and I don't know if it'll you know, I don't know if it's gone for good, you know, but um, are there still things that trigger your depression? Do you think is it still kind of based on situational things? Something happens yeah, it, and then you're really upset and go into yeah, a depression. it. Yeah, it's it's always been circumstantial. Yeah. Like if if I, uh, you know, suddenly lost my house or if, if my wife dies tonight, like, oh, my, you know, there's no. But it, there are things that like everyone will be depressed with that, like everyone's any sort of rough time. But. And I don't know if it's just, you know, pattern history makes people look at me like, oh, he's going to do something or my own like, oh, now I'm going to do something. You know, th- that's it. 
but I think people looking at you and getting worried uh, is an acceptable feeling given the number <laughs> of attempts you've had. Right. So there is this history. I, and I would I would push back on you a little bit and say, you know, like uh, I've lost my father recently. I'm grieving the loss of him, but I'm not clinically depressed now. Because I know I've been clinically depressed. Yeah. So I can go through some really terrible things. And and many people who are doing well mentally can. And you feel, yeah, deep sadness, and which is a normal feeling, right? But you don't necessarily become clinically depressed. And you yeah. don't necessarily have active suicidal thoughts because yeah. you're going through a tough time. Where it sounds like you still battle with those. No, and it's it, so. You're, so three years ago, my dad passed, and is after a long battle with cancer and dementia. And at the same time, um, we just had—I had been laid off. I had been—I had been working full time for like eighteen months, and we were months away from losing our house. Uh, we were living off yard sales to pay bills, and the plan was to—we were going to sell our house and live with my dad for his last few months, and then figure out what to do, and. A uh, couple were coming to see our house for the third time, and I get the call that my dad is now got he's got days to live, and I was like, "Fuck!" Like, uh, right, right, cancel the house. We, I don't know what's happening next. We can't, I, you know. And uh, but yeah, I was never depressed during that time. Right. It was like tough and things to deal with, but it wasn't depression. And that's um, awesome, isn't that? I mean, for me, it was nice to know I can feel deeply sad and not go into a depression. Did you find like yeah. satisfaction in that in a way? Yeah. No, no, you're 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 right. Um, yeah, because yeah, even even through you know, w- you know, wakes and memorials and all that sort of thing, yeah. it was just the sadness of of a passing and right, which is very it. normal, right? Even a yeah. deep sadness. So then, you know, you finally decide. You said uh, you finally decide to share your story, and you do it publicly for the first time on stage, right? Yeah, a, a number of times on different stages. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, what? And you did you say that was two thousand and eight? Yeah. So I first did I I first did a uh, video in two thousand eight. Okay. Yeah, and then I, you know I I was asked to do a speech for uh, for NAMI at one point. Okay. I've, I've had the pleasure of speaking about this to military audiences. Awesome. Um, yeah. So you start sharing your story publicly, but. When I mean, take us through the progression because you've done several things. Uh, you have a podcast, and like you said earlier, it's video and there's an audio version of it. You have best-selling books. In fact, your one of your books is is about suicide and recovering from suicide and and having a successful life thereafter. Right? Still here, how to succeed in life after failing at suicide? Yeah. That, so that book is everything I wished I knew when I was seventeen. Cool. It's everything I've learned. And and the thing is, when I stop doing the things that keep me happy, healthy, and centered, I get worse. And that's the big like some things can rock my world and I'm upset. I don't and it doesn't throw me off. Um, but I I have rituals and meditation and prayer that I rely on daily. And when circumstances or uh, my own cockiness uh, combined perhaps to just like, yeah, I don't need to do that stuff anymore. That's when I'm setting myself up for failure. Right. Right. Which, which of these pieces came first? Uh, your, your video making, your podcast, the audio piece, the, the book, the authoring of several books. 
Yeah. So the the first book I wrote is uh, I forget the exact title. It's it's all about positive affirmations. Right. And I was taking a positive psychology program in hmm, 2013. I'm looking around at my certificates. (laughs) (laughs) It's not in front of me. But uh, it was this year long program with with Hal Ben Shahir, who created Harvard's most popular class on how to be happy. And 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 by this time, I was already I was already working as an energy coach. So I took this to kind of get the science to go with my spirituality. And I thought it was going to challenge lots of different things, but I just kept finding out that science is catching up to spirituality and the power of gratitude, the power of meditation, all these different things. But at one point, the professor Tal said, one thing I can tell you is affirmations don't work. And affirmations and Louise Hay, um, her book, You Can Heal Your Life, turned my life around, was one of the first things that really gave me long lasting hope. So I use affirmations and I use mirror work and I was like, oh, and we had to do a we had to do a final project for this class. It was it was a year long and I'm like, I'm gonna write a book. I'm gonna show this guy wrong because affirmations helped me so much and I'm gonna tell. So I shared my favorites, some I've made up and how I use them, and it hit number one on Amazon, and I was stunned. I figure like, well, everyone's heard of affirmations. Anyone's gonna use them has already gotten them right, but. So I also made a print book. I did an audio book. I wrote a sequel. Then my dog died. <laughs> and instead of falling into depression, I, I wrote all the lessons I learned from my dog. And that became, you know, Homer's Guide to Happiness. That was uh, my third book. And then that ends up getting picked up by Louise Hay in a book called You Can Heal Your Heart. There's a chapter on pet loss. And there's an Andy and Homer in that book. And I'm Andy and my dog Homer was Homer. That is fantastic. Um, yeah. So again, that's why I'm start learning. But wow, the more I share, the more it spreads and the more I'm rewarded. And, you know, life wants me to keep going. Life wants all of us to share and express. And we are creative forces, right? We are, we are divine beings. And it's all these things that you know, I've probably told for years. And I remember when I, I remember how many different therapists told me you should uh, journal and write a gratitude journal. And I was like, that that's that's so freaking stupid. I'm not, I'm not some little girl. I'm not going to have my my little pony diary, you know, but, <laughs> but then I did it. And I've been I've been doing a gratitude journal since 2007. Awesome. Yeah. And I have a do you write in it every day? Yeah. Yeah. That's I have now have a I have a steamer trunk full of these journals that'll be a weird discovery someday (laughs) that is fantastic yeah and affirmations other things everything i used to make fun of is something i do now because it works right did you uh i've never been published i'm like a a book and i'm curious did you self-publish or did you work with a publisher so (laughs) at first I, I thought, I, I, you know, I, I'm going to tell my story. I'm going to do the autobiography, and it was called Surviving Myself. And I worked with a professional. I worked on a book proposal. It was submitted to agents. The few that got back to me were like, this is powerful. This is needed. This will never be published because nobody knows who you are. All right. And instead of being crushed, like that, that's why I mentioned getting all my hospital records. It was all to write this book. I had to get all the evidence and prove and that I have done these things. And what were the actual dates? And what were people saying about me? And and I tell you, reading reading all the all the inline notes from doctors and nurses about you is 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 a trip. I that was a that was some tough reading. But so yeah, so I ended up going self published, and that's why I broke it down. And instead of telling my story, I wanted to share no what helped me. Like I, I, who cares about what happened to me? Here are the things that helped me. 
Like right. I, I used to think life sucked. I used to think I wanted to die, but I only thought I wanted to die. Right. That's awesome. So four, is it four books that you have published now? Uh, there's another, let's see, one, two, three, four, five. I've, cause I've, I've, I've got some children's books <laughs> where the, I traveled the world. I had the pl- privilege of doing a lot of world travel and I travel with a plastic lizard named Larry and he's got a couple children's books because, uh, just kids always crack up whenever they see Larry, wherever that I go. That is awesome. But, yeah. And I've got a book on holotropic breathwork, um, which is one of the great modalities I found that, that literally had one of the biggest breakthroughs of my life. And can you explain what that even is? Yeah. Holotropic breath work. It's sometimes called circular breathing, but you, you, you lay down your, your partner, someone's sitting over you, but you just breathe deeply and you eliminate the pause. So you the, the physical thing that's happening is you over oxygenate your blood and you, you have a mystical experience. Um, things come out to be healed. It's, it's, you know, magic takes over. But it's in a room with a lot of people. They play cranking tribal music and ancient things and didgeridoos and nothing with lyrics. It's all just a, organized to take you on this just incredible spiritual journey. And, uh, man, the, the first time I, I was at a week-long meditation retreat, it was the first time I'd gone to something like this. And this was just one night, and it, it cracked me open. Um, it made me realize that I had survived attempted murder. And to, to own that and and to take pride in that. And I wrote my parents' love letters at three in the morning. I wrote myself a love letter. I sent flowers um, back home before I left this retreat. And I bawled and bawled and bawled all night and mourned how beautiful life is and mourned how I tried to throw it away multiple times. And that's the night my healing really started. Sounds like an incredible experience. It was, Yeah. And did you include right in the book? Did you write about that specific experience? Yes, that's that. That's chapter one. It's all okay. about my. So it, this is because I had never heard of this before. And then since I discovered it was created by Stanislav Grof, who studied LSD um, behind the Iron Curtain. And then after World War, um, oh, it can't be World War Two. How old is he? I think he's eighty. Maybe he could be. But anyway, he he left he left the the Soviet system and came to America, and studied different ways for healing with psychotropic um, elements and then wanted to find ways to not do drugs and found that all these ancient tribes had these rituals of breath work taking you to altered states and that this natural healer comes out. And, you know, my, I brought my, my wife has done this and she just giggles and laughs and has a blast. And I'm like, you're doing it wrong. It's supposed to be horrible and dramatic. What are you doing? You know? but, so can but people practice, does, can people practice this on their own or do they have to be I with a group? Yeah, I, it's but they're, there, I've heard horror stories of doing it on your own. That's why you have a sitter because there's no one to kind of bring you back. Okay. Right. You, it's, 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 you know, it's a bit of an out of body experience. They, they, they call it double bookkeeping. Like I'm aware I was just laying on some ballroom floor. Yet I'm also aware I am just tripping and flying through space and just feeling how amazing it is to be alive. Wow. Um, so yeah. You, and then you, it, I mean, it felt psychedelic. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Like it. I thought. You know, I could smell colors and and see feelings and, you know, but. And, and it's all and, based on the way you're doing your breathing? Yeah. And that's it? Yeah. Holotropic and the breath. LSD that they slip you or no? <laughs> no, that's what it feels like. But yeah, I don't even want to, the, the bad joke even joke that because I'm sure some people think that's what's happening. But there are groups all around, re- retreats, Stanislav Groff. Um, again, I'm in Massachusetts. There's a Boston group that meets and does this every few months. So I've done it probably eight times. Wow. 
Um, and it's worked for you every time you have these this psychedelic experience. Once, once I just had like the best meditation in my life. Okay. And so it's yeah that and that's but the, the others like, were. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. It's always yeah. And some wow. people move like you know you have you have a sitter to make sure you just like stay because like like uh, you know high school and college like I would take magic mushrooms and run around and I'm like oh no this is tripping and then going inward it's it's right. what you know what the native americans use peyote for and it's just like no going inward using these substances to find a different level of you not to run out run around and raise hell that is similar to what i've heard is being done uh with some of the psychedelic drugs these days yeah. too um yeah. like a blindfold on somebody who's shrooming or taking lsd and a sitter right there to help walk them through this whole in- inward journey I believe all of that work is coming out of holotropic breathwork because this this has right. been happening since it started in the 60s. Wow. Um, but yeah, there are groups all over. They do it all over the world. Um, and so I've done it in groups as small as six people and as large as 150 at the same time. And and they're both amazing. But like sometimes in a large group, two people, someone will talk about their experience in that last hour and someone like, that's the exact thing I had. And you're like, what? And it's just, just like wow. amazing coincidences and all sorts of like archetypal things can happen. And you know, you, you have your experience and then you switch and you get to just sit with someone else and just watch this, this really holy thing happen. Right. And then before you speak to anyone, you, you, you take the time and you draw it. Right. And, and then you, then you share finally. And, and, and does anybody and, who's leading the group then say like, in order to come again and experience this kind of thrill, you need to give us your boat and your <laughs> that stuff doesn't happen. No, <laughs> I no. have to say it sounds a little cult like. No, um, nope. You get to go home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, do you think has anybody that you've shared this with say, "Wow, that does it sounds a bit cult like"? No, because uh, I, so I was in Scientology one? for a year. Yeah, I've been in cults. So that, that the breath work, that's just a weekend somewhere. That was not even close. Okay, well, I certainly didn't mean to offend you or take away the benefits of this by, by making that comment. I think it's incredible. Uh, so tell us now more about your podcast and, again, uh, how it is also video because you have guests, correct? Yep. Yeah. So, yep, I even, uh, I've done panel shows. We've had up to six people at once debating different things. That is really yeah. cool. And I think you said you use the platform of Zoom and that allows audio and video? Correct. So I record and then uh, the, the audio goes to every podcast platform there is. The video goes to YouTube and now onto to Facebook, to Facebook Watch, I think they call it. But it's just, you know, Facebook. But yeah, you, you can and watch the, or listen. The title of the show is? Real Men Feel. And tell and us more about it. So it's really... As a coach, as a speaker, as as a person at these you know spiritual and personal growth events, I'm used to being the lone man or one of the, one of the five percent of men in the audience. And most of my clients have always been women, and all these women have always assumed that I also had all sorts of male clients. But again, in my experience, guys aren't as willing to to go deep and to acknowledge their pain and to take down their masks. Right. So I just felt. I can't remember if it was actually from literally in a meditation or, you know, or what hit me, but I, I felt a calling to do something for men. And I was toying around with different things. I was doing a presentation on masculinity and what it means to be a man and just playing with all these different, if you, if you search, you know, real men don't eat quiche, real men wear pink, real men, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what if real men felt you know, what, what if we judged a man as being brave and courageous and strong because he was willing to cry um, and 
that that stuck with me. So, and because I was afraid, I asked a friend of mine to be a co-host. And the first few shows were were us just talking. And then I think by show four, someone asked to be a guest. I was like, really? <laughs> you want to go? Okay. And and it's slow. It's been it's been four years. I just released episode one hundred sixty nine. Wow. My, my co-host dropped off around episode 100 just for for time commitments yeah um which has been neat because we were in different time zones it was just more juggling so now i can talk to guests all around the world and just just whenever because i work from home so i can do a podcast at any time any day right and it has been phenomenal even you know i, I the last year's worth of shows i can own as these are good <laughs> like right, right. and that's that's rare like it's you know if, if any creator is it's kind of rare to that you actually say like hey I, this creation is good this is um but yeah it's just really deep things it has led to so many things i've i forget how i'm i have so many friends that i forget that were actually began as podcast guests i've gotten work i've gotten voiceover work i became an editor at the good men project because of the the show uh, different sponsors and authors and and people and people I've looked up to and people I've learned to look up to, and then just last week someone reached out and they admitted to how intimidated and scared they were to even talk to me to ask me to be on their show. That's funny. And I was like, wow, like really, dude? I'm just some local idiot, you know? <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, do you I have a barely... do you have a favorite guest or a favorite episode? I would never say that because it discounts too many other fantastic people. Do you have a but, handful of? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I will say, you know, the the one that pops into my mind often is uh, it was fairly. I think it was last October, but her name is Dr. Lulu, and she's a surgeon and pediatrician and suicide prevention activist and an African American, and she went so deep in her sharing that she got me, this middle aged white guy, to feel what it feels like to be an African-American mom worried about your kids leaving the house in a hoodie. Right. And I think she's one of the very few, I was in tears listening to a guest as opposed to just being in tears because I'm sharing, feeling horrible in an episode like that. Right. Um, But yeah, she stands out. I've also had some really powerful men recently sharing you know, kind of the opposite of what I had with a near-death experience where they really felt this energy of this Christ consciousness wake them up. And this recent episode, uh, Vince Belito, and he he was literally in the mob. His dream was to be a mob kingpin, and he was a drug dealer and criminal and left that all cold turkey and is now a spiritual guide and, and an energy healer. Wow. Um, it's, just, it's just stuff that I didn't believe at growing up you know i thought it'd be something on in search of you know right Um, right and it's just the the level of openness and authenticity that that in this this platform that that i've that i've made and and it's that way because i i it's it's authentic and open by my example and the level of people i've got stepping into that and just sharing is is just blows me away yeah that's awesome and what would you say is your and you might have just said it, but what's your favorite part? What is what makes you so passionate about this that has allowed you to do this for so many years? You know, it's it's the connection. Like the, the, if if you go if you go to realmenfield.org and you look at the shows and you might see like wow, there's like a three month gap. Oh wow, there's a six month gap. That's when I was so depressed and miserable. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want anyone to help me. And that's why I was kind of coming back in the, the last year worth of shows. 
has just been phenomenal. I'm like, I'm amazed of the connections that can be made from, from one conversation, right? Cause it's one deep conversation, you know, like, like talks like we're having, this is, you know, this is, I don't know, 50 years worth of like neighborhood get togethers. You know? <laughs> right, it's, right. And it, it is that it's letting, letting me mirror somebody in their pain and in their joy and letting, having someone else mirror that back to me, their pain and joy. And, it's just this heartfelt connection that, that just yet we don't. There's not other places to get it. Like maybe you get it from you know a, a, a well done entertaining drama, but for the sake of you know, this isn't this isn't reality television. That's performance and and BS. This is <laughs> right. just you know it's 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 people letting their guard down intentionally right. and, and not feeling tricked and. And that's what it's all about. It's, you know, it's, it's being willing to feel, you know, real men feel. I, I often joke that the big secret behind the show is that all I'm doing is reminding men that they're human beings. Right. And, and that it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's fantastic. If people want to get to the podcast, what's the, the best way? Uh, so realmenfeel.org is the website with everything. But yeah, if you put real men feel and uh, iTunes or Google or anywhere, you'll find it. Uh, my website is theandygrant.com, and there's a link to the podcast there as well. Um, but yeah, if you put Real Men Feel into YouTube or onto Facebook, you're you're gonna find us. So those are the the two best ways to to reach out and get in touch with you would be realmenfeel.org and theandygrant.com. Correct, because you okay. want the. Don't settle for some random Andy Grant. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Uh, and then you've, you're on some social media platforms as well, correct? Yeah, I'm I'm on everything that I'm aware of, except TikTok. I haven't figured that out. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, Andy, before we wrap up, I want to ask you if there are some listeners right now struggling, feeling deeply depressed, uh, what piece of advice or suggestion would you give them? Keep going. Just the the fact that you're still here means you're supposed to be here. Right. Right. And however shitty the circumstances are they are just temporary circumstances and you know this is a cliche that was thrown at me a lot when i was a kid and i always just poo-pooed it but it's true and you know suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem right and it i believe in the core of my being that nobody's here for the purpose of ending their life prematurely due to emotional pain right and you're not alone. I, I've called suicide prevention hotlines. Um, I've relied on strangers. I've wandered around streets bawling my eyes out. There's no wrong way to get through it. Find someone you can rely on because find someone to share it with. And if it's a stranger, if it's a hotline, great. But you're not alone. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Andy, thank you uh, so much. I'm really uh, – it's – inspirational to hear just how deeply depressed you were and what you've gone through and how you've turned it around so incredibly so well that you're using your story as a platform you're writing books you're doing podcasts you're doing videos it's it's really uh, an inspirational story so i want to thank you for putting all that positive energy out in the world for supporting so many men and others and uh and thank you for taking the time to be on the show. Thanks. It's uh, It really has been a pleasure. Even 
going through the shit. <laughs> so thank you for the opportunity. All right. Well, make sure you stay healthy. I will. You too. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.